Well, you can find your way to Isaiah chapter 14, where we find ourselves today. And uh, you had a homework assignment, and based on the looks of shock, the looks of disbelief, the uh, some of you snuck out during the prayer time, don't think I didn't see that, um, that um, you had a homework assignment. And uh, your mission, and you were supposed to accept it, was to compare uh, what we looked at in Isaiah 14 with Ezekiel 28. And um, so how many of you actually made some effort at the homework assignment? You know, the state of education in our country is just going down the toilet. I mean, it really is. Uh, You'll have it ready in two days. I did, but I must have dozed off during that part. So, oh, I yeah, I was not in there for the introduction. Yeah, so okay, okay, all right. Well, uh, do you want another week? I mean, we're going to blow by it today, so we'll have to turn this into a group assignment. I'll tell you what, man. I, I, uh, well, I, I could, uh, I could spend an hour bemoaning the education system in our country, but that wouldn't be helpful. So let's turn to the text here. And uh, we will uh, try to help you guys all to salvage your grade today. So um, Isaiah chapter 14. So what we're looking at, uh, we've come to the second major division in the book, uh, which is the section of the book, uh, which is largely about the judgment of the surrounding nations. Um, Our title, of course, is Seeing God Through Judgment and Redemption. So we expect that those two themes really dominate the book of Isaiah, and and they do. And, And the section we're in starting in chapter 14 and going through uh, uh, several chapters, is a section on the judgment that God brings against surrounding nations and really on the whole world. We looked in our psalm today that God is high and lifted up and his faithfulness, his sovereignty, uh, his consistency in our life. And one of, the, one of the reasons we need to meditate on that, especially as it relates to what's wrong in the world, is you probably have days and weeks like I do where you just turn off your CNN app because you're like, this is just too depressing. I mean, I got enough hard things in my life. I don't need six other beep, beep, you know, breaking news alert that, that this world is, is falling apart. I mean, the, the airplane is disintegrating in the air as we look at uh, the world around us. And, um, and I'm not talking about you know, environment, I'm talking about people. I'm talking about nations and rulers and societies and cultures. And we wonder, how long is God going to let this go on? Maybe you've asked honest questions like this. I think most people have. If God is good, why doesn't he just stop all this? We know he loves people. We know he loves to redeem people and intervene why is he letting this thing play out like he is? And we need to rest assured that God has good reasons for letting it play out. And the Bible even speaks to some of those. But the fundamental character issue behind what's going on is, can we trust this God to make all things right one day? Um, you think about that. You're, you're, the impulse you have to personal vengeance and justice when someone wrongs you 
when society uh, is out of control. And, and, and because we're made in the image of God, there's part of us that says, that's not right. We need to do something about that, right? You know how that, that feeling. That's a, good, that's a good impulse. But then the Bible tells us this, that things like this. Judgment is mine, I will replay, saith the Lord. Right? Never take your own revenge, brothers, but leave room for the wrath of, wrath of God. And we read those passages and we like, okay, but all of that depends on, in our hearts, the conviction that God actually will do what he says he's going to do. And that's what Isaiah is addressing here right now in terms of telling the people who are, his own people are under judgment, but it's like he's zooming out now and God is saying, you know what, there's nobody that gets away with anything, that God will bring final judgment, final justice, and now is the time to turn to him. Uh, before that day comes. We've talked about the day of the Lord in chapter 13. We've talked about the fall uh, of Babylon to the Medes. And now the section that we're in, we've looked at this last week, is this song, this um, proverbial song that Israel will sing when the king of Babylon is finally taken down. We looked at that now, the section that's really inter- interested us is this section where we're not really sure. Are we talking about a human king? Are we talking about something different? So let, let's get a running start here by way of review. Some of you weren't here last week, and good night. If you didn't do your homework assignment, I know you haven't been thinking about this all week. So, uh, so we'll jump in here by way of review and, and uh, get up to speed here, okay? Just again, remembering the context, we're coming out of chapter 13, verses 70 to 22, talking about the fall of Babylon to the Medes. And we're going to do this again. You do this a lot, and you're going to get this till it's burned into your memory, okay? At the time that we're talking about, Assyria is the nation that controls most of this region we know as um, the Middle East, right? And then Assyria will be taken over by what country? What superpower? Babylon. Then Babylon is defeated by the, the Medes and Persians, and there, there's, a, there's a two-fold phase that that comes in, the Medes and then the Persians. And then after that, who takes over? The Greeks, and then after them? Okay, good. Okay, you, you got to get that, because when you parachute into your Bible and you start reading, if you don't know the geopolitical situation, you're going to be really lost. you be like, why are these people so afraid, and who's that, and where is that? If you're like me, you failed geography, get to know that nice little map in the back of your Bible, or your favorite Bible app that has those available, because these dates, times, places, rulers aren't going to mean anything. You're, you're going to miss what God has for you in your Bible reading if you can't bring all that together, okay? So we need to do that little history review to remember the political changes that happened. So so what changed, let's see if you were paying attention now, in thir- chapter 13, verses 17 to 22, what transition is uh, Mr. Isaiah talking about here? There's a major political transition. Yeah, the Medes take over, and who are they taking over from? Babylon, Babylon okay? So that's that transition we're looking at here. Now, this is, um, this is not something that Isaiah is actually going to see in his lifetime. He's going to die before this happens. Who's going to see it? What, what prophet is going to see the, uh, this transition? Do you remember? Yeah, Daniel will see it, right? And what we call the, the post-exilic prophets, okay? Some of the minor prophets that uh, spoke after the exile, So uh, Isaiah won't see this, but Daniel and others will. Okay, so what happens then is we see uh, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 14 a hope and a future for Israel. Okay, the people will take along and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance. 
Okay, and verse 3, And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So God is saying there's coming a day when Israel will finally rest from their enemies, which means the the yoke bondage of the uh, Babylonians will be broken. And uh, and it says they're going to take up this taunt. Uh, Remember that word doesn't mean they're, they're mocking necessarily. It's a it's a saying, it's a proverb, it's a song, and um, and the song is about the uh, overthrow of uh, the king of Babylon and the crumbling of the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, so we can look at that there, uh, and we've asked the question, and this is kind of what's had us pull the car over in our study: is who is this king of Babylon? And we've looked at some options: is he the current king? We read about him more in chapter thirty-nine. Is it a future king? Uh, perhaps even the final ruler known as the Antichrist where Babylon is resurrected in, in the book of Revelation verses 17, chapter 17 and 18. Uh, is there some hint in the context? We look at chapter 14 verse 7 last time. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth in shouts of joy. We're not talking about a regional peace. Isaiah seems to be talking about more of a global peace. And that contextual hint may help us to form an interpretation. Now, the other thing we have to figure out is what is this business about this ruler who falls from heaven? Uh, he's called the star of the morning, uh, the day star, the shining star, Lucifer. We talked about that uh, reference probably to uh, the, the planet Venus, which you can see right here, which at uh, certain times of the year is uh, the, the dawn star, the, the brightest thing in the morning. You guys can see it right up here. In this case, uh, the moon is also uh, there, but that bright morning star, which uh, in many seasons is the planet Venus, that's probably what our writers are referencing here when they talk about the day star or the star of the morning. But our, our question is, what does that symbolize? Well, what does it mean? And um, we know that star often means angel. We looked at that last time. Uh, this sun of the dawn, that parallels star of the morning, um, and notice what happens. This ruler, this uh, individual is cut down to the earth because he has this prideful desire to stand above God and to rule over him. And, and look at some of the things he says. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. And remember in um, ancient Near Eastern history at this time that Isaiah is writing, the mount of the assembly was a mountain region to the north of Israel where uh, many cultures believe the Canaanite gods gathered to assemble. And so Isaiah is saying to this pagan world, this leader is desiring to rank himself and find himself even above the other gods. So we see his pride and his arrogance. Um, we looked last time at uh, our favorite Babylonian king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. And we saw that... Uh, t- well, well, tell me. Let's, let's just see if you remember. Tell me about Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. He was prideful. Good night was he prideful. He was so prideful. What did he go build on the plains of Dura? A statue, right? The statue got him high, right? He was just uh, so enthralled with his own reputation and his own ability. He said, I'm, I'm going to build a statue that represents my ego. No, no, he didn't say that. Um, he's going to build a statue to 
um, what's the word? Um, to be a physical repre- representation of his own self-image. And then he would call the people to bow down and worship of it. Okay. And you remember with uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the fiery furnace. And what God is there who can stop me? Dun, dun, dun. Right? Uh, right? And then God was gracious. God intervened through Daniel. Uh, Daniel then went to him again, remember, and said, If you don't repent, uh, God's going to bring judgment on you. And God gave him a year. He gave him a year to repent. And one day, Nebuchadnezzar's walking around on the roof of his palace, and he says, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built, that I have uh, put together with my own hands and the work of my own genius? And the Bible says, while the words were still in his mouth, judgment came from heaven. And this judgment was unlike any other judgment that we've seen in the Bible, where King Nebuchadnezzar literally lost his mind. And God sent him out to live with the animals. You think... You think that God thinks lightly of our own thoughts about our own abilities and our power and our righteousness? Whenever you're tempted to get a big head about anything, it might be how great you play soccer. It may be the wise investments that you made last year. It it may be patting yourself on the back for family Uh, successes or whatever it is whenever we are tempted to pride we should think of mr nebuchadnezzar crawling around with the cattle in the pasture eating the grass like the ox that's that's there in our bibles guys because that's what god thinks of our pride he's not just picking on nebuchadnezzar it's pride he hates and when we compete with him, when we aspire to be over him, when, when we live like he doesn't exist, and when we act in our hearts like we are autonomous and we are independent and we are the God of our own world, that's what God thinks. That's what we deserve. And it's only God's grace and kindness that we're all not wandering around in the pasture, frankly. Um. So we can see, coming back to Isaiah, we can see that the Babylonian rulers, as Nebuchadnezzar, as, as the poster boy, that you know, Babylonian rulers, like all these rulers, had a major pride problem. Uh, so it fits, doesn't it? Keith, in my uh, <clears throat> notes that I've made there, uh, I've got the middle letter of sin as I. Pride is a root problem, hmm. and all sin uh, originates in pride. But if you look down in 13, it's, uh-huh. I will, I will, yes. I will, yep. I will. Yep. Did you hear what she said? The middle letter of sin is I. There's your takeaway. That's, a, that's, that's very good, very memorable. Okay. He said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And God says, I will cut you down. He will not even enjoy a proper burial, which is very important in the ancient ancient Near East. God will cut off all survivors and will utterly destroy the land. Okay, now this lead this brings us to our homework assignment, your homework assignment, the one that you were supposed to do. Um, the question is, looking at this, is this the biography of a human king, or are there factors in this section here, verses twelve uh, to verse? Uh, 
15, 12 to, 12 to 15 there, are there factors in this description that transcend the possibility of it applying merely to a human king? That, so your homework assignment was to compare this with Ezekiel 28 and come back and tell me what you thought. Okay? All of you get Fs, and I love you, but you get Fs. So, um, so let's do this exercise together, okay? Um, so with that in your mind, flip over to Ezekiel 28. Now, why are we doing this? We're doing this because historically in the church, many Christians have believed that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, even though they're written about human kings, seem to transcend in their description something that a human king is capable of. So some of the early church fathers thought this must be talking about the fall of Satan, not just the fall of a human king. That's why we're talking about this. And if you have a study Bible and you've read some of those notes uh, you're familiar with that. Now, in Ezekiel, uh, whose um, message is very similar than I, to Isaiah, although they wrote uh, at different times, uh, his, his message here is to the king of Tyre. Uh, Tyre is a little city. You remember, uh, actually, Isaiah is going to talk about it, a little city uh, on uh, kind of the north side of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, north of uh, Jerusalem. Now, listen to this description, and then we're going to compare and contrast. We're going to do this as a group exercise, and, and, and I'll be nice. You'll get a group grade today instead, okay? We'll just do a group grade. Uh, my son uh, told me that at his school, if you wore a Hawaiian shirt this last Friday for the pepper, you got, a, you got a, like five points on your quiz or something like that? Ten. Okay. So if you wear Hawaiian shirts next Sunday... Um, <laughs> That might be fun, though. Might, we should maybe try that. Yeah, you want to up your grade in Sunday school. Why is everybody dressed weird today? That's right. That's right. If you're looking for an improvement on your grade, and it sounds like all you need to do that. So, Okay, so Ezekiel 28. Let, let's look at the text here. Uh, the, the text starts off very similar to Isaiah 14, the, the section on judgment, because it says, The word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre. So a song that's written about the king of Babylon versus a prophecy against the king or the leader, as it says here, of Tyre. Uh, verse 2, Because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God and I sit in the seat of gods. Now what does that sound like? That sounds like Isaiah, right? I want to sit in the assembly, the mountain of assembly, right? I want to be amongst the gods. Now, now a footnote on this. Um, I don't know what you think of current world leaders, prime ministers, local dictators, you know, whatever. I, I don't know what you think about them. If you think that this language is, is just so over the top, um, it is actually fairly common in world history that major political leaders talked and thought like this. Uh, especially, um, well, I was going to say, especially in, in the, uh, the pre-modern era, but even in, in the post-modern era. Okay, so if, if you hear that, you're thinking, man, this is clearly, no, 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 no that rulers actually talk like that. I mean, go back and, and study Greek history, for example, and, you know, Alexander the Great and all of that, and the, how it infiltrated with the Greek god system, and, you know, that, that's all very normal, okay? So he says, in your heart, uh, and, and yet you are a man and not God, Ezekiel tells him, although you make your heart like the heart of God. And that's not a compliment, by the way. And we all want to have hearts like God in a good sense. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying you're making your heart like God, meaning you're thinking of yourself 
in that way. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches. What is Mr. Ezekiel doing there? He's using sarcasm. This is sanctified sarcasm. Write it down. Okay. Uh, God inspired sarcasm. Now we need to be careful with that because usually our sarcasm is not godly because it's at the detriment of somebody else in an ungodly way. This is sanctified sarcasm. This is divinely inspired, Holy Spirit breathed out sarcasm of judgment against an arrogant, prideful, boastful king who deserves it. Okay. Your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, behold, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of of the sea. Now, we're going to get to a section later on in Isaiah where we see judgment on the king of Tyre and uh, the city itself, and then I'm going to walk you through the actual history of what happened. Fascinating. And the prophecy against Tyre is one of the most specific graphic prophecies against a city, and the history we have that chronicles down to the letter. Every exact detail is overwhelming. Okay, so we'll look at this in our study of Isaiah in terms of the fulfillment. Right now, let's just focus on comparing and contrasting with what we hear in Isaiah 14. Okay, verse 8. They will bring you down to the pit. You will die the death of those that are slain in the heart of the sea. Yet you will still say, I am a God in the presence of your slayer. What's the heart of arrogance like? You know why pride is so dangerous? Even when it's obvious to everyone around you that you are undone, you still believe in yourself. You you still think too highly of yourself. That's what pride does. Pride says everybody else is wrong and I'm right. Though you were man and not God in the hands of those who wound you, you will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Again, Now again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden. Where's Eden? Okay. The point is, when Ezekiel writes this, there is no Eden on the local ancient Near Eastern Google Map app. It's not there. Because like Dave said, it, it's gone, it's buried, and even today we're not, we only have a general idea where it was. But Ezekiel singles out the king and says, you were in Eden, which is geographically confusing, but we'll come back to that. The Garden of God. Okay, that clarifies it a little bit. We're talking about the same Eden, right? The same Eden as Genesis chapter 1. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he gives a laundry list of different uh, precious stones here. Um, he says all those ornaments, all those precious gems and rocks and stones were on you, were in you 
on the day that you were created. Verse 13, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were the anointed carub, right? Cherub, we would say in English, who covers. Now, we talked about cherub before. We talked about angels before. Uh, This is a a title uh, for a type of angel. And he says, you were the... Now, who's the you, by the way? Let's just... Who's he talking to? I mean, you, no, he's, he's, still addressing the king. he's still addressing the king of Tyre, right? So that, that's what I wanted you to see, okay? You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. And I have turned you to the ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's definitely some references to the garden here. Okay. So, so let's compare and contrast And I know there's a little chart in your notes. Don't worry about that. Cause we're going to do a lot more here just collectively or here. Okay. What similarities do you see between Isaiah 14 and what we just read in Ezekiel 28? Okay. Yeah. So, so we, so there seems to be, you know, a, a transition where we're talking about a human king, and at some point the language gets more dramatic, uh, more significant, and seemingly less applicable to just a human king, right? So there's this human king transition to, to something greater. Just say that. Okay, falling, okay, and if there's another word that was used in both sections, falling from the standpoint of the individual, from God's perspective, how does God describe it? Casting, okay, there you go, casting away, casting down, casting out, okay, very good. What else do you notice? Okay, references to pride, right? What what specific references do you see? Give me exact language, okay? This is an open Bible group exercise, so keep your Bible open. You can look at it. <clears throat> I will make myself like the Most High. Okay. Like Most High. What else do you see? He compares himself to God. Okay. Compares himself to God. What else? 
your grade is based on participation. I just want to let you know that. So don't be shy. Your heart is lifted up because of your youth. Okay, heart lifted up. No end. Yeah. Yeah, he's still saying, I'm a God, I'm a God, right? Okay. That's Ezekiel 28. Keep going. We got a lot, of, a lot to cover here. Seal of perfection. We don't really know what that is. Is that is that a reference to his true position or is that a reference to his own conflated estimation and uh it sounds like that's a original position right so that wouldn't well and and god and god is saying that yeah so god is saying that so so we might add another line and say originally perfect i'll put a question mark there because we're not we need to verify that Okay, the reference to Sodom, right? Okay, so we have a, a reference to a city known for its sin and idolatry and also its judgment. Carl? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so this could be his nature or it could speak to his responsibilities, right? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. This whole cherub language. We, and that's that's something that is a difference, right? We don't see that language used in Isaiah. We do see it in Ezekiel. The cherub isn't used very often in Scripture. It's not. Just a very few times in reference to the covering angels, reminiscent of the ark of okay. the angels and the mercy seat. That's right. So, so here's the question. What other word used in this section links with cherub based upon what Dave just said, that it doesn't, cherub doesn't occur much in Scripture. Okay, morning star could be a reference to angel, okay. Okay, well, well we're, we, Satan might be in this text. Lift it up, okay. I, here, here, okay, this is the guess what Pastor Keith is thinking games. So let me help you. Um, where in the Bible do we see a reference to cherub coupled with a specific reference in Ezekiel 28? There's another thing in Ezekiel 28 that links with cherub based on a reference in the Bible. What is that other thing? Eden, yes. What happens in Eden regarding the cherubim? The fall, and then they get banished, right? And then what does God do? The cherubim guard the place of the tree of life, right? With a flaming sword that you, you talk about wanting to see the movie on that one, right? Just this 
awesome, overwhelmingly terrifying creature who's guarding the way and he's got a sword that's on fire. And in some way that that sword guards the whole of the entrance. So that's really interesting because you have a reference to cherub, which doesn't occur very often in the Bible. The first reference to cherub or cherubim in the scripture is Genesis 3. And Ezekiel 28 references Eden, the garden of God. So that puts those two things together. Do you see that? There's a connection there. Um, really interesting. Really interesting. Okay. What else do you got? That's true because it's plural. Right. Yeah, so there's a public there's a public judgment. Okay. Yeah, there's a final destruction, right? It's interesting. The judgment is progressive, isn't it? Right? You notice that there's there's progressions to the judgment leading up to a final destruction where he says at the very end of the text, you'll be no more. Even that's interesting. How, how would that play out with a human king? I mean, a gradual downfall leading to a final obliteration. So anyway, I, I think you guys are getting most of these. So let's look at your notes here and catch up a little bit. OK, if we compare and contrast here in Isaiah 14, we, we see that star of the morning could be a reference to an angel. This desire to be above God, the pride language. He's cut down to earth. Um, so in Ezekiel 28, we have a similar scenario in that he's called a cherub, which is a, a direct reference to an angel. Uh, lifted up, we see that language multiple times. Um, wanting to be like God, wanting to be amongst the assembly. We talked a lot about pride, being like the Most High. His heart's lifted up. So definitely a common reference to pride. Both of these texts talk about being cast away or cut down or sent away. We referenced that uh, uh, right here. This reference to Eden, and this is, this, this is what should bug you. You should read this and go, and how on earth is the king of Tyre in Eden? And you think, well, maybe it's, maybe, it's like, maybe it's like Texas, right? Every city in Texas can be found somewhere else in the world, right? Paris, even Palestine, right? There's a Palestine there and there's a Palestine, right? So, so we say that. Maybe Eden, referenced in Ezekiel 28, is a different reference. The problem is there was no Eden. There's no Eden on the map when Ezekiel is writing this. And then it clarifies it in case we're, we're really off. He says it's, it's the Eden that is the garden of God. That points back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And that's what makes us pull the car over when we're reading Ezekiel and go, what on earth are we even talking about here? How can the king of Tyre be in the garden of God in Eden? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, on the day you were created, right? It makes me think of the term the power behind the throne. In political terms, you have rulers who don't seem to be very sharp themselves, but there's somebody behind them who actually makes the decisions. Right. 
and then he gets to the verse, and it's like he says, now I'm going to talk to the man in charge of right. your right. kingdom. And he's talking over his shoulder to the power behind. Okay. Yeah, and, and let's just, I'll, Grant, I'll get you in just a second. Um, let, let's just, this may be new to you, depending on your background, if you're new to Christianity and, and how much you've, you've learned over the years. The, the Bible's perspective, we see this in, Dan, or in, in Job, actually. The Bible's perspective is that there is an angelic realm that is behind this world. And we got to be careful because we're not going to go Frank Peretti here and see that, you know, every, and I'm totally dating myself when I say that. But anyway, uh, some of you are like, who's Frank Peretti? Okay, well, ask your parents, okay? Um, but it, it, the Bible's perspective is not that everything that happens in the world is animated by good and bad angels. And that's where Frank Peretti kind of got in the ditch a little bit, okay? The Christian fiction author. Um, but what the Bible does say is that there are rulers and powers and angelic beings that in some way affect and influence what goes on on a human level in this world, okay? And, and that is one of those things where God gives us like this much of the picture and in heaven we'll get the full schematic and that'll be awesome, okay? But for now we just go, it's there, we can't deny it, we don't know exactly how it works, we get glimpses of it like in the book of Job, like in Jude, uh, in Daniel, we get a little glimpse when Michael shows up and, you know, where you been, Michael, right? Well, remember that whole thing? So that's true. So then the question is, when we see a section of scripture like this and we say, okay, he's clearly talking to a human king by context, but at some point, does it seem like God ceases to address the human king and is then addressing some of these angelic powers that might be behind in terms of influencing or animating the human king. That, that's Dave's point. And, and that fits because we know theologically that's, that's what happens sometimes. That's true. Okay? Grant, jump in here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that, that's a good cross-reference there, okay? So, so what do you think? I mean, here, I actually got one more. Hang on. He occupied the mountain of God. We didn't talk about that. And he was blameless. And then he sinned and was unrighteous. No, so originally perfect, originally blameless. He uses different language there to describe that. So when we compare and contrast Isaiah 14 with Ezekiel 28, we see some similarities. But what do you notice about the language in Ezekiel 28 versus the language in Isaiah 14? What's the main difference there? Right. Do you agree with that? Do you hear what she said? There seem to be references in Ezekiel that are not just hyperbolic, meaning the writer is exaggerating to make a point, but they seem to reference what must be something other than human, a, a, an angel or something like that. Do you see that? My opinion looking at this is I can see Isaiah 14 being a human king, albeit there's some really strong language there. I can't look at Ezekiel 28 and say we can fit this into a human king box because the language is just too dramatic. 
references to Eden, direct references to angels, talking about being on the mountain of God, seal of perfection, fallen, righteous, then unrighteous. Um, And this goes, interestingly, we'll have to do this another time, but this follows what we know of in the book of Revelation was Satan's actual biography. So there does seem to be a parallel here. Okay, I'm not going to beat the pulpit on this because, again, anytime you're dealing with prophetic language, it's hard to be super precise. But this, the language here seems to be so over the top that we can't be talking about a human king. So that's my conclusion. Carl and then David, yeah. Or, or David and Carl. Uh, it, the stuff that's in uh, Ezekiel is very detailed. Mm-hmm. Right. You have been cut down to earth, so there's the casting out. You who have weakened the nations, so there's the idea of working right. through the king. Right. Yeah, you know, you can definitely look at these. And so if we're right, and this is referencing Satan and his fall, we also learn some things about Satan here. And we have to be careful because, you know, we're like, okay, I think it's this. And so, but yeah, you, you do learn insights about his influence on the nations and, and uh, some of the ways that he works. So, Carl? So to me, uh, one of the things that you in Isaiah, we are talking human king, but it's, it's the, the principle, if you will, it's the idea of the pride, because mm-hmm. you mentioned last week there are no historical kings that fit everything that's talked about in Isaiah. Right. And then you see Ezekiel taking that to the utmost. Right. In the aspect of what is the greatest example of utmost example, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, this issue of pride. Right. That here is this limited, created being. Mm-hmm. Cherub had very limited roles mm-hmm. and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So Satan is limited, mm-hmm. and yet he says, I am God. Right. And then right. the utmost of that, that principle being carried forward. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. That really is really well said. And, you know, and it fits, guys, because when Satan went to Eve in the garden in her innocence... What did he say? You can be God. And um, I think we all think that if we were there, we would have said, no, God told me, right? And so you can, you know, argue with God about that. But but here's the thing. Um, behind every act of sin, and I know preachers exaggerate sometimes, but I really have thought about this, okay? Um Behind every act of sin is a desire to displace God and stand in his place in some way. And that's why this is so important. That, that's why Ezekiel is spending all this time. That's why he's exposing what happened to Satan. That's why he is drawing attention to the arrogance of these human rulers. Because we are least like God and we are most like Satan when we talk and think and act like what we're seeing here. And it, guys, it, it may be as simple as you're tempted to take an extra cookie. And you know you don't need an extra cookie. You have made commitments to not have an extra cookie. And, is this too personal? Um, and in that moment... In that moment, you say, I'm an adult and I'm going to do whatever, right? And you forget that even in the simplest and the most innocent of temptations, 
we're setting ourselves up as the one who makes the rules and makes the decisions. And you can apply that to something as high-handed as murder or adultery or lying or theft or getting angry and hurting somebody with your words because in that moment you are taking your cue from yourself instead of from the God that we are under and depend on for life and breath and everything. We, we, we need to be on a search and destroy mission for any and all pockets of pride because it is the cancer, it is, it is the... It is the acquired disease of fallen humanity that affects and drives every part of sin. You know, what is God looking for, right? That we would humbly trust him and follow him in everything we do. That's it. And what does pride say? I don't need God. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm going to make my own rules, my own decisions, right? So you see how those are antithetical, okay? Regine. Are you looking ahead? Because that's where Isaiah goes next. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. It is. We have to land there and not not have a, a fatalism about Satan's power. Certainly. Okay. So let's uh, let, let's wrap this up. Okay. So in some interpretive reminders, okay, this is important uh, because part of what we're trying to do in this class is learn how do we interpret the Bible, how do we interpret hard passages. We start with this principle. We want to take the, a passage of Scripture in its plain, simple, ordinary way as often as possible. You read the Bible in its plain, normal sense. And that doesn't mean we ignore metaphors and, and artistic language and, and different types of literature, but we take it in its plain, normal, ordinary sense, looking for the what was the author's intended meaning, how does it fit in the context, okay? There are times, though, when when we do that, we go, it just doesn't fit. And I think that's what we have with Ezekiel 28. To, to, to take all that in to a human king, which seems to be the context, that seems to be the normal, plain, ordinary sense, we go, that just doesn't fit. So at that point, we start thinking about contextual clues that may point to a future fulfillment or some other interpretation. In this case, it's not a future fulfillment. What is it? Assuming that we're talking about the God of this world. It's history, history. yeah. That's right. That's right. So if we go back to Isaiah 14, which is where we started, uh, how do we? Who is the king of Isaiah 14? The context, I think, favors a human king. We all talked about that and agreed on that last time. There are some factors that could point to an angel. We looked at some of those today. That, that's in the realm of possibility. I mentioned that history does not record an exact historical fulfillment. 
now, just a footnote, that doesn't mean we rule out the human king option. It could be that we just don't have good history. And at that time in the world, you understand that there was not Encyclopedia Britannica. That's for the old people in the room. There was not Wikipedia. That's for the young people in the room. They didn't, we didn't have that back then. So the historic records that we have are, are good by ancient Near Eastern standards, but there could have been a human king that fit this description and we just don't have record of it. But nonetheless, that gives us caution that you know maybe something else is going on here. So our options are, it could be more of a collective understanding of king, and you'll see this. In fact, I'll show you this in other places in Isaiah where as God is announcing judgment on the king, even as he judged Ahaz in the previous chapters, he's also condemning who? The whole nation, right? Ahaz is the representative of the whole nation. You see that throughout biblical history where the king receives the actual judgment, but it's the people, the whole nation in a collective way that really is in play. The other option is it could be some future king. Talked about that, that maybe the, resurre- the, the king of resurrected Babylon in the end times in Revelation 17 and 18. Uh, it, could be, it could be, like I said, an individual human king. We just don't have historic record of that. Okay, But again, plain normal sense, unless there's just such compelling details that we, we can't take it in its normal way, and then we start looking at other options, a collective sense, a future sense. Uh, like Dave said in Ezekiel 28, we're kind of looking backward, actually, at some history. Um, but but here's, here's the thing I want you to, to take away, okay? Don't look for the most bizarre, creative... Uh, off the wall, no commentator has ever come up with it before. That's not your first go-to interpretation, okay? And sometimes uh, when we're first beginning Bible study uh, methods as new Christians, we, we tend to go there because it's interesting, right? It, 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 the creative juices, okay? Uh, studying your Bible is not an exercise in creative juice use, okay? Um, we need to study God's Word and try to figure out what God meant through the human author. Okay, now... Watch this. Look at how this ends. Okay? Look at how this ends. So we talked about the judgment comes right on on the Babylonian king. Verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned it, so it will stand. And then he looks backward to chapter 13 here, okay? Going back to Assyria. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying what is personified in Assyria what we have just talked about in Babylon. This is the plight. This is the problem, he says, of all of humanity. That we are arrogant, having rejected our God, having puffed ourselves up, we're going our own way. And what does God say? This is my plan to stretch out against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. God says, this isn't just for Babylon, this isn't just for Assyria, this is for any and all nations and peoples that would rise up in pride in their heart against their creator. And what does God say? Watch that. This is, this is absolutely amazing. Verse 27. For the Lord of hosts, remember that's God in BDUs, right? That's God in his military attire. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? 
And as, as for his uh, stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Wow. So what's he saying? This is my decree. This is my plan. What Regine talked about in Ezekiel 28. God's going to do this. God's going to do this. God's going to do this. He has planned it and it will come to pass. His outstretched arm, that, that's a reference to his, his readiness to act, to do what he's just told us he's going to do. He says, um, who's going to stop it? No one. No one will stop the arm of God as he comes in judgment to bring every arrogant creature to humble submission to him. You know what that tells us? You can believe what God says. That the two things that this, this last little section say are number one, you better be taking God seriously because if he has said it, he will do it. Okay, he's not playing games. We, we talk about his faithfulness, his reliability, right? But the other thing is, if he's said it and you know he's going to do it, what else? He is absolutely powerful to bring to pass everything that he wills. You will not stop God. There is no human king. There is no superpower. There is no nation. There is no dictator. There is no collective rising up against the creator that can even damage his outstretched arm in some way. He will come and he will bring it to pass and no one will stop him. Now, that's our God. You can trust him, right? He's reliable. You can be assured because he's going to bring to pass what he says. In judgment, you better believe it. All this mess around us, all this brokenness and suffering and sin, do not be discouraged because God has a plan. He will fix it. He will address it. He will bring it to judgment. You can rely on him. You can count on him. You can take it to the bank. But you know what? That's also true in other areas. All of God's promises... Everything he says in scripture about your well-being, about your peace, about your joy, about your provision, about being forgiven, about not having to worry about the guilt of your past, about some need that you have. Can I just, just encourage you? You can trust God with those things. He's, if he said it, you can believe him. You, you can take it to heart. He will do it. And nothing in this world will stop him from fulfilling his promises to you and to me. Nothing. No cancer, no financial situation, no hard human situation. This is our God, guys. And this is why we love him. This is why we worship him. This is why we entrust our whole life to him. Because he's worthy of it. So on your notes, we'll just call it the, unf the faithful, unstoppable God. And I hope that as you meditate on this verse, your view of God will increase. And that will excel your love and your trust and your obedience and your worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this picture of who you are in awesome judgment. Um... Lord, would you help us to take you seriously if we're not? That the games that people play with you, that you're coming in judgment in your military attire, 
Your hand is outstretched. No one will stop you. And you will bring every act to pass. And Lord, we thank you as we think about this in a positive way that we can believe and trust your promises. And there is no trial or situation or hardship that we have that will keep you from fulfilling the promises that you've made to your people. So we trust you uh, afresh. We, we renew our, our confidence in you and our rest that you will do exactly what you say you will do. Lord, might you keep us in this place of, of trust and love and submission and admiration. In Jesus' name, amen.